Welcome back to Safe Talk with Safe Start. I'm your host, Danny Smith. And I'm your host, uh, co-host, Tim Page Bodorf. And Danny, if we're sharing a mic, it probably means the listeners might suspect we have something special for them today. And we really, really do today. Uh, our guest today, which I'll unveil in just a second, is uh, a best-selling author, an uh, internationally known motivational speaker, uh, podcaster himself. And uh, he's also going to be our 2022 Human Factors Conference keynote speaker. And and more importantly, uh, he's just a heck of a nice guy. <laughs> After talking to him, I get a lot of that. Uh, so, you know, Danny, I was actually thinking if there was a rock star in the safety world, he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer in the Rock and Roll for Safety Hall of Fame. Um I think that name needs a little work. Probably so. Yeah. Maybe we need to work on that. Maybe turn that over to our marketing department to figure out a better name. But yeah, your point's a great one. And, and John would certainly get my vote as well. Uh, you know, with, with Safe Start, we, we talk often about kind of that vicarious learning experience that we gain through, well, through storytelling. And one of the things that's truly inspiring is when someone not only has a great story, but also tells it in a way that's motivating. And it doesn't hurt when they're also a phenomenal speaker. Well, our guest today really fits the bill with all of the things that I just mentioned. And it's our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Mr. John O'Leary. John, welcome. Danny and Tim and Safe Talk family listeners. Hey, uh, you know, I'm sitting here like a fly on the wall listening to that, wondering who you're going to introduce. And now I'm nervous because you said the words John O'Leary. So I was I was looking forward to meeting this Hall of Famer. And this all star, but uh, man, I'll I'll plug in for her today, and just know that I'm honored to be a part of it. John, thanks so much for being here. Um, we're really excited to announce that you're going to be our keynote speaker for the Human Factors Conference. That's actually in Kissimmee, Florida. So, John, just to get our appetite wet, if you could, just can you give our listeners the story and the background? Just kind of a quick overview of your story and background. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I think one of the things that's coolest in some regards about my story is I never told anybody about it for almost two decades. It was only at age 28 when I finally began to embrace the story that you're asking me about, but it took 19 years to really embrace not only the lessons of the story, but also the beauty of, of what I went through. And what we're going all the way back to is that at age nine, I was a Missouri kid growing up in just outside of St. Louis, Missouri, saw kids in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And what, what these little kids would do is they would sprinkle gasoline on a sidewalk. They would strike a match, you know, throw the match on top of the liquid and it would just spark to life guys. And when you're nine and a little boy, this is awesome. It's like a scene from Harry Potter. And you figure if these big, tough 11 year old guys can do it, you know, famous last words. So can I, so, so can I. Mm -hmm. And so that weekend with my father at work and my mother out with two sisters, I walked into the garage, bent over a can of gasoline, tried to pour a little bit of gasoline from a five gallon container on top of a piece of cardboard that was ablaze. And before the liquid even came out of that can, as you guys all know, the, the fumes, man, it's not the liquid that typically burns. It's the fumes. It's the stuff you don't even see coming that gets you. That, that day, those fumes came out of that can. It created a massive explosion, split the can in two, launches me 20 feet against the forest out of the garage, <laughs> covers me in gasoline, lights my world on fire, and changes everything, not only for me, 
you know, I think it's very easy to view safety as something that happens to one person. It changed not only my life profoundly, but changed the life of my five siblings, my parents and everybody who loved us back then. So that's the starting point of this wild, painful and eventually redemptive story forward. You know, John, you mentioned, uh, you know, we often think about the person who's injured, uh, obviously, as the first the first casualty, if you will. And maybe that's not the right word there, but uh, certainly the first person who experiences the the pain and the the traumatic event but there are so many other folks that that experience things there as well including the family members um, uh, how did that affect your your other family members I mean you, you mentioned mm. in your story that your older brother was there and actually as I understand it helped to put put the fire out right uh, that was on you uh, how did how did that affect him and you know yep. your other siblings and your even your parents there? So if you don't mind, I'd like to answer that in two ways. One is just straight up what how it affected them directly and then indirectly how it changed their life afterwards because they're, they're different answers. So directly, when I was on fire as a boy, I did what came natural. So we were trained as little ones, you know, stop, drop and roll. It's easy to repeat back to the firefighter or Smokey Bear or whoever's guiding you through that training as a little one. But when you actually find yourself in an explosive situation, 20 feet away from that blast point in a garage that was originally darkened and now it's ablaze and you're on fire, man, my, my training went out the window. I panicked. I got nervous. I was in pain. I'm scared. I'm nine. I'm freaking out. And so I ran on fire through the flames into my house. Last thing in the world you ought to do. But so many times when you are on fire as a child in particular, that's what you end up doing. So I ran into the house, ran around the house several times. Eventually, my brother, Jim, who was 17, I was nine. He hears the screams. He comes toward me. He picks up a little rug. He spends a couple minutes and we could slow the story down, but I don't think we need to. He spends a couple minutes beating down the flames, wraps me in that rug, carries me outside, just, you know, rolls around on top of me goes back into the house, races my two sisters who were in the basement out of the house, gets the dog out of the house, calls 911. 1987, the lifesaver of the year for the state of Missouri, was not a National Guardsman or woman, was not a firefighter or first responder. The lifesaver of the year for the state of almost 5 million was a 17-year-old who, who changed his life when he recognized what really mattered. It's it's a cool story of, of transformation. Physically, my brother Jim experienced burns on his hands and arms, second degree, which, you know, for those who have not yet gone through this experience and hopefully never will go through this experience, it's like a terrible sunburn. It bubbles up, horrible pain, blisters, but eventually it goes away. So it, it does not scar. That's good. But I did not know as a nine-year-old and then 10-year-old and then 11-year-old and then 12-year-old and then into my teens and 20s, the scars that remained on him, on my sisters, on my mom and dad. I began your first question, John, you know, what was that story, man? And I began by talking about my late 20s. What happened then, my mom and dad wrote a book about their experience having their little boy not named John get burned terribly. They printed 100 copies. It's the unauthorized biography of John O'Leary. So they, they put my picture on the front of it. They've sold, I think, 85,000 cents. And that little book changed my life, not because so much it taught me about me 
as much as it taught me about what the community went through and where grace showed up and how leaders, not just those with the title, but those without the title, how they showed up for me and what, what they went through, what they g- gave us and how they changed our lives. It also taught me, though, about the suffering that my mom and dad went through. I, guys, I, I had always viewed my fire as happening to me. And I'm the victim of this fire. Poor, and candidly, poor me. I'm the one that lost my fingers, man. I'm the one that still has scars on 87% of my body. I'm the one that walks with a limp and gets stared at in any room I walk into. I'm the one that got burned. And then I read this story and I realized, my gosh, like I'd never once thought about what it was like to sign the papers as a father to allow the doctors to take your son's fingers. What, what's that pain like? What's it like in real time? And what's it like for the rest of your days? What's that pain like, man? I never thought about it. And then my dad wrote about it. It changed my life. It changed the way I viewed my father and I viewed that experience. I, I never thought about what happens once my mom walked out of my room at nighttime. All I knew is the nurses chased her out about nine o'clock PM. That's visiting hours, man. They end. I did not know she walked down the hallway and just started weeping. And then would walk that hallway hour after hour, wondering. I get emotional because this this is real. Hour after hour, when when I return in the morning, I mom, when I come back in the morning, will my son still be in that bed? Will he make it through that night? Mm-hmm. I never thought about what that pain was like. And while all the focus during those five and a half months in hospital were on me, and candidly, a couple years afterwards, all of the attention was on me. What about my siblings? They're kids, man. Where's their mom and dad for them? Where's the focus and the love for them? I never thought about that, not once. And then at age 28, I read about it and it just, it softened my heart and uh, it allowed me to recognize not only was I the only one burned, but also I was not the only one who was saved. We we had this awesome community and, and for us in our faith view, this awesome God who showed up in a mighty way for all of us. It just was something we never talked about. It took uh, almost two decades to uh, to embrace that story. Uh, I just I'm, I feel the emotion, and as we kind of switch gears a little bit from reacting to the situation and trying to put a fire out, so to speak, transferring that over to how we approach safety with a twenty four seven focus and getting families involved. How do you speak to your immediate family now about safety with this incident in your background? Right. So my, my mom, she she was asked that question, like, did you ever talk about fire safety? And her answer was, no. Well, like, why, why would you? We talked about look left before you cross the street, then right. Put the seatbelt on. Uh, you know, wear a helmet when you're on a bike. Like, things that you know will affect you. But we never talked about fire because we knew it would not affect you. So I, I handle safety in two ways. Number one is I am not an overprotected parent, which might surprise some of our listeners right now. I don't want my kids to never scrape their knees. I want them to go through those experiences and I want to be there with them to watch and observe and to love and to guide as they pick themselves up and dust themselves off and move forward into life. I don't think we want people to to live in bubbles. I don't think that's wise. I think eventually that that bubble bursts and then you're in real, real trouble. So I'm okay exposing my kids to, to life. I think that's healthy. What I'm not okay with though is talking, is ignoring things that I know could have a profoundly negative effect on them longer term. So when daddy is lighting the barbecue pit, I'm not afraid of fire today, but I'm respectful of fire. I'm respectful of that barbecue pit. We talk about it. 
We talk about why we're doing this, why we're standing back over here while this thing is starting to catch, why we respect fire, uh, but also why we don't run away from it. So we, every time I do anything with my kids that has a bit of risk married into it, I address it and we speak about it in real time because I want them to recognize there is risk in living, but there's also a gift in living. And so I want them, I want them to choose mm. safety. I want them to choose safety. I think one thing we did negatively in the safety world for too long is we made it more punitive. We talked about if you don't do this, you lose your job, man. Do it or else. And I want my kids to recognize the power of choosing safety for safety's sake, for life's sake, for their sake, for, for the purpose of, wow. of living even a better life going um, forward. The, the, that's amazing. That's so powerful. Sorry, Danny. I just have this real quick statement. There's this 83 step thing up in uh, the Phoenix Muse uh, Museum for Children, and the 83 steps going up doesn't have a single handrail. And the and the this, this platform plaque on the front of it says, "Parents, this stairway was developed to get your kids to approach you know stairways in life, and there's no guardrails to let them live life through the lens of." paying better attention, better situational awareness, not being punitive. So yeah, the alignment there is amazing. And I, I really do appreciate the the punitive discussion because I, I too agree that we spend a lot of time going to blame and we spend a lot of time in the world of safety of trying to find that root cause, which again, ultimately is, is blame and, and punitive. Sorry about that, Danny. I just no, wanted to jump in there. Real quick. That's great. I love it. Yeah, John, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, just, uh, you know, how it, this has affected you, even with things like uh, how you walk into the room, you know, uh, walking with a limp and, 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 and just, you know, how people, I guess, how, how people perceive that. What what are some assumptions that people have made uh, about you and about, you know, your life? Uh, mm. Just, you know, as, as they look and they see you initially, perhaps, or, or perhaps as they, you know, in general, just what are some, some assumptions right. that people have made uh, about your life since your accident? So I have a dear friend up in our, our church here in St. Louis, Missouri. And, and, you know, we weren't dear friends at first. We were strangers, you know, strangers in the same community, but strangers. And he was really honest with me one night while we were just sitting around a campfire talking about life and work and things that matter to us. And he said, I got to let you know, uh, when I first saw you, I felt sorry for you. And he went on from there to explain why, you know, the scars and the pain and you walk with a limp and you know, you're missing your fingers and, all this other stuff. And now he said, John, when I grow up, I hope I'm a lot more like you, which was incredibly flattering for both his honesty and vulnerability around how he previously felt, but also today, how he, now that he knows me, I'm not defined by those who know me by scars or limitations or fingerless hands, man, like that, that that's weak. And I credit my mom and dad for that. But I think the world sees me as being less than or broken or damaged goods. But the cool thing is I don't, not at all. So where did that strength come from? Where did that fortitude come from? And for me, without a doubt, that's my mom. That's my dad. That's, <laughs> that's my mother. When she saw one time, uh, I went to shake someone's hand. And the gentleman who extended his right hand saw my fingerless hand, pulled back and walked away. My mother came right over to me and she said to me, John, don't you ever turn away from someone like that. You, you reach out from now on with both hands. And when you see them even begin to start pulling away from you, you grab that hand, man, you pull them in close and you take even take that whole body and you give them a hug, man. You are worthy. You are worthy. So she was, she expected me to treat myself like I belonged in the room. 
like I was worthy of being part of that conversation, part of that handshake, part of that hug that's going to come afterwards. And we, we could unpack a whole lot of other listen, lessons my mother taught me. But one of the most important was that I was not a victim of these circumstances. And I, I think we live in a culture, This is, I think it's a reality, you can challenge me on this, where we almost celebrate a, a victim mindset, where we almost celebrate those among us who feel sure. as if, you know, it's, there's just nothing I can do about it, man. I, I was born this way, or I had lousy parents, or my fingers are missing, or I, I grew up without that. I'll never take the next right step in life. We had a whole lot of reasons to have that tendency, and yet we had leaders I called them mom and dad who refused to allow me and my siblings to go that way. That is an amazing um, analogy. I actually call that entitlement tied as playing the victim. Feels like you deserve something when actually you need to go out and earn it, um, which I think I I can definitely agree with you there. So um, great story about getting inspiration. I have to ask, it really would have been easy at age nine, I'd say, to just stop and not carry on and not move on and not pick up the pieces. But other than your parents, where else did you get the inspiration to pick up the pieces and move on? So, you know, I, I know this is a six hour podcast, so we'll burn about the next five and a half hours. On <laughs> <these words. laughs> there, there are quite literally too many to end. When my dad and mom finished their book, they said this is just a partial story of, of the individuals who showed up for us. Uh, there are not enough libraries in the world to contain the stories of those who showed up for us right on time. And that's pretty accurate. It seemed like any time we needed somebody to show up for us, somebody was there right on time. One of the stories that I very seldom share in conference and very seldom even write about or talk about, and I just think it's a cool story. So I'd like to bring it forward today. A guy named Glenn Cunningham was an Olympic champion. You can Google Glenn Cunningham. Uh, he raced in the Berlin Olympics in 36, maybe, or whatever year that might have been in the mid-1930s. A great Olympic champion. He became the Olympian of the Olympics, which means of all the Olympians from all over the world, Glenn was the one that they all looked up to. Why? Was he the fastest? Close, but not the fastest. Best looking? Probably not. I got to meet him? Probably not. Then why? Why? Well, when he was, I believe, an eight-year-old boy growing up in Kansas, he was involved in a fire, a terrible fire that was so bad it claimed the life of his brother, Floyd. Glenn barely survived. The doctors wanted to take his legs. His mother refused. So this little boy goes through the rest of his life with these damaged, broken, scarred up legs. When he finally came home from hospital, after months and months and months in hospital, when they had care that was radically less than the care we have these days, they didn't know what to do with him because he couldn't walk yet. <laughs> so this awesome mother carries her little boy who's missing his little brother. What's that pain like, you know? carries his little brother to the very end of their ranch in Kansas, sets him on a fence post, and then she walks in. So for the moms listening, if I've not yet rocked you to sleep, uh, sit up and take some notes. Can you imagine taking your one <laughs> remaining child to the end of your family plot, to the final fence post? He cannot walk. He cannot stand on his own. And you leave him out there. Glenn had to figure out, what do I do? <laughs> so this little boy... <laughs> Grabs onto the fence post and then lets go with one hand and starts slowly, hand over hand, foot over foot, foot, making his way back in. He comes back in sad and mad and angry and sweaty. But moms and dads and safety directors and citizens, he gets back into the house. 
foot over foot, hand over hand, he's able to do it. I think too frequently, we just tell people they can't do things. We'll carry you out there and then we'll carry you back in because you are a victim and you will remain so, but I'll carry you. She doesn't do that. She carries him out and then she, without speaking a word says, and you can come back in if you choose, if you choose it. And he does. Mm. And then she does the same thing the following day and the following day and the following day. And eventually Shory truncated down. This little boy doesn't walk in, he jogs in. And then he doesn't jog in, he runs in. He becomes the fastest miler at the University of Kansas. He becomes the fastest miler in the entire U.S. history back in the late 20s and early 30s. He becomes the Olympic Olympian of Olympians. What a, what a, what a treat. He comes home, though, and he realizes his life ultimately is about service. The coolest thing about Glenn Cunningham and his wife, Ruth, is they start fostering kids. Very long story made very short. By the end of his life, he fosters more than, hope you're all sitting down, 9,000 children who come onto the farm. Jeez. And the only rule that Glenn and Ruth has yeah. is we will treat you like you are ours. You are one of our babies now. We will love you, but we will also hold you accountable to what is possible in your life. Some kids stay today. Others became Cunninghams. They stayed for the rest of their lives, but he loved them all like they were his. Five days before Glenn Cunningham dies, he knocks on the door of someone who lives six and a half hours away from him. The little boy who met him at the door was a little kid still in a wheelchair named John O'Leary. And this Olympian of Olympian walks into my house and tells me this story and tells me about being burned and losing his brother. And he shares with me a quote that I've never forgotten. And the quote was, never quit. It was like a tattoo Cunningham wore on his right bicep, never quit, never quit. And he told me how hard it would be and how difficult and how isolating and everything else I might face going forward into my recovery. And he said it one more time, never quit, never quit. And then this old Kansas boy, man, hopped into his old red beat up Ford, honked the horn a couple times and drove home. And then a couple days later, he goes home, you know, dies. A life well lived, profoundly well lived. Not you know, Wikipedia will tell you about the awards. They'll tell you about the times and the track records, and they will miss the real story of Glenn Cunningham, which I think is the real invitation for all of our lives. It won't always be tracked on some safety record. I think it's far easier to track the things that go wrong, candidly, in safety or in life. And if you don't believe me, watch your evening news tonight. It, it's far better, though, and far more life-giving and transformational to at least try to track the good. And that's what Glenn did so well. And I'm blessed to be one of the individuals that he showed up for and whose life he changed. Sounds like some incredible advice. Um, John, as, um, as you talk with folks uh, in individually, and uh, you know, obviously you have the opportunity to speak with with large crowds as, as you're doing keynote addresses, uh, literally all over the place. Um, what, what advice would you give, uh, to someone who's really facing just the, some type of, uh, just a truly life altering challenge like that? Hmm. We, we gave out journals at the front side of COVID-19 to our team. And there were three words on it. The, the second word was, and, Okay, so that one's not as important, but the second word was and. The third word was excellence. Excellence. So in the midst of COVID and virtual learning and as a motivational speaker, 94% of our revenue disappeared overnight and the challenges were going to be fierce and several of us take care of our parents who are aging or ill. 
this was going to be a really hard season, but, but I wanted our team to step into it with excellence. So that, that was the third word. And I hope those who are in the middle of a struggle right now hear that word, like even, even still excellence. But the first word is the one I think really we all need to hear in particular, those of us who are struggling right now, whether it's a health condition, an unexpected diagnosis, the, the, the pain of a loss, whatever it might be. The, the first word is grace. So all of us in our organization, three words, grace and excellence in all you do and who you are and how you step into the season, grace and excellence. What I would remind anyone right now who is struggling mightily, and that is probably the majority of those who are still tuning into our podcast today, is to give themselves a lot of grace during the season of unknown, during the season of pain, during the season of struggle. In a marketplace that seems like it seldom does, uh, begin with the reflection in the mirror and giving yourself an awful lot of, gra- an awful lot of grace. Y- you will need it. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to punch the pillow. It's okay to cry. It's okay to curse. It's okay to push a hole in the drywall, man. It is okay. Give yourself a lot of grace. And then as we continue to work through this season together, I don't think that's just a buzzword politically, man. We honestly have to do this in safety, in our families, in our singleness, as a community, in our businesses, as a society. You got to do it together. Grace and excellence. Uh, armor up, grab the arm of your nearest brother and sister, even if they have a different last name, even if they insist they're six feet away from you with a mask on, fine. Grab their arm, love them (laughs) forward. Do not try to do this thing by yourself and do not allow them to do it by themselves either. There there was a study done by a national insurance organization right before COVID. So this is before the global pandemic. And it found that 66% of people felt as if they were doing life by themselves. This isn't due to COVID-19. This isn't because of social distancing. This wasn't because of Zoom calls. No, this is before all that. The global pandemic was here long before COVID-19 reached our shores. We feel as if we're doing life together or by ourselves. So then our job in safety and in leadership and in our families and in our communities is to lower the armor, give ourselves a lot of grace, but reach out to our brothers and sisters around us and to do life together, grace and excellence. It's not either or, it's a yes and. Um, that is some powerful stuff. I'm already just, Mike, you can't see it on the video, but of course our listeners aren't watching a video. So there's goosebumps all over my arms and I'm trying <laughs> to explain this to a crowd of people. Um, I completely feel that and we got to get back to being human, don't we? It, that's, yeah, just, that's just so important. Um, anyway, John, I, I don't assume at nine years old, you thought you were going to be this outstanding public speaker. Um, and somewhere along the way, there was some kind of hint or clue that you probably should. So how was that? How did that occur? So before I even answer that, uh, you know, this outstanding world renowned speaker, I had a dear friend yesterday who sent me, uh, in, in Amazon, amazon.com. You can order O'Leary's books. One of them is called On Fire. Uh, he sent me a review with one out of five stars. And this guy just went on to bash me. And my friend writes in, in this text, he goes, hey, dude, I'm glad finally someone else understands how I feel about you. And it's just this hilarious roast of what a horrible human being John is, what a lousy author he is. He's got no original content on and on and on and on and on. So, uh, I appreciate you say, you know, excellent, world-renowned. The the reality is life keeps me humble. Looking in the mirror at a broken body keeps me humble. Having friends who love me enough to call out my my bull 
keep me humble. Having a wife keeps me humble. Having a father who's got Parkinson's disease, who's losing the ability to speak and swallow and is in pain all the time, that keeps me humble. Seeing the headlines keeps me humble. So I, although I'm uh, grateful for praise when it comes, uh, I'm humble in the way I receive it. So just just know that, man. Like I'm, I'm, I'm humble to be on the call with you today. And to have friends who love me enough to rip on me to my face. <laughs> so when did I realize I would be a speaker? Well, I got a call when I was in my late 20s. Uh, and it was from a little Girl Scout. And uh, I picked up the phone. I was working construction at the time, actually. I was a, a general contractor here in St. Louis. Started off you know, sh- hanging drywall without fingers and sheeting roofs w- without fingers and hanging cabinets without fingers and doing the work without fingers and eventually became a general contractor and eventually ran this entire business. But I'm, I'm, I'm picking up a phone, having no idea who it is. And the little girl says, Mr. O'Leary. And you know, I'm like 28. So I said, Oh, I think, I think you want my dad. Let me get you his number. And she goes, no, Mr. O'Leary, I, I got the right one. I, he just gave me your number. I, I want you. And she said, I, I, I heard about your story. Would you speak to my troop? And guys, I'd, I'd never, you know, I'm not a motivational speaker. I don't even like to do the safety talks on Monday mornings, man. So I, I, I never felt called, <laughs> but, but I also recognize the ability to say yes to the next opportunity, even when you don't feel called or worthy of it, you know? So I said, uh, sure. Well, when is it? And it was a couple of weeks out. So I, uh, I gave a, an 11 minute keynote to this little girl and to two other Girl Scouts <laughs> was not even paid with a box of Samoas for my, uh, my efforts for speaking to this troop. And, and then one of their, one of their dads was a Rotarian and he said, Hey, uh, Hey John, that was awesome. Would you speak to my, my, my guys? Sure. So I got a chicken sandwich and, and got to spend 20 minutes with Rotary. And, and then one of those guys was in Kiwanis. Would you speak? Sure. So it started off humbly where it has remained. It's grown a little bit in size and stature, I think, over the 17 years or so that have followed. But it always begins with this idea of serving the one in front of us. And, and I'm not caught up in numbers. You know, I run a business. We got to track revenue and we got to track numbers and all that. But our job is to love the one in front of us. That's all. That, that is as complicated as this business is today. Just love the one in front of you. And if you do that right and you do it well and you do it humbly and you do it to the best of your God-given abilities, it's amazing how many phone calls will keep coming in. So we, we are still loving the three Girl Scouts and the, the big organizations and everybody in between. And uh, we remain humble in the manner in which we do it. That's awesome. I have, as you were telling the story about the review on Amazon, uh, I, I thought of uh, our producer, uh, Kevin Cobb. Uh, Kevin is by far one of one of my mentors, uh, particularly with the Safe Start process, but just in general in life. And uh, one of the things I remember very, very early on as I was first onboarding as a consultant with Safe Start is uh, Kevin pulled me aside and he says, I always remember this. You're never as bad as they say that you are. Don't, whatever they say, you're never as bad as they say you are. Now, couch that because you're never as good as they say you are either, okay? You're somewhere in between, so I've always remembered that, and I think that was great advice. Um, one other quick question for you here uh, as we think about this. Uh, I know a bit about your story, and I've heard you share some of this through the years and had the privilege of seeing you speak at several conferences. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, a, a bit about what happened with – Jack Buck. And do you think you would have made it without Jack? 
So I, I would imagine for the non-St. Louis Cardinal fans or the non-baseball fans or the folks that may not have followed football back in the mid-80s, the, the guy you're referencing is a Hall of Famer. He's an announcer. He's in seven, seven different Hall of Fames for his skills. So like th- this is a polished, professional, successful guy. And we ought to all strive toward that humbly, but we ought to strive toward being a Hall of Famer in whatever work you find yourself doing. I have a picture to your right up there of Martin Luther King Jr. One of my favorite quotes is about challenging us, whether you are street sweeping, baby, you sweep those streets like Michelangelo created art. So let your job title not influence the ability that you have to make a difference and an impact through that job. So I, I hate, and I don't use that word often, but I hate when I meet someone and they say, I am just this. I'm just that. Man, you aren't just anything. So whatever you are called to do, do it well. Jack Buck was a wildly successful broadcaster. And more than that, a better human being. He was the little, the voice that I listened to as a kid growing up in St. Louis, Missouri. He was the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. And I loved him. I never met the man physically, but I I went to sleep night after night for nine years listening to the voice. And after I got burned, guys, I was... So, bar- so terribly burned that I lost the ability to move and to, to open up my eyes, could not communicate, could not talk. So I'm, I'm totally cut off from the world. But I knew that voice. And the day after I'm burned into my room come footsteps and then a chair and then that voice of Jack Buck. And I won't go through all the stories, but he says that day, kid, wake up. You, you are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. Keep fighting. And then he is told by the staff that the little boy is going to die. And then the following day, in spite of the diagnosis, he shows back up in a stranger's life and says the words, kid, wake up. I'm back. (laughs) You are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. Those visits from my hero, that encouragement from a friend, that vision. I think we all need vision. One of the old challenges of safety, it was all punitive. I think one of the cool things we're moving toward in safety is it's actually all like like progressive. Like it's given us something to stretch toward. It's about purpose ultimately and calling and why. Serving as your brothers and sisters keepers. Going home safe every day to those who loved you or, or going home on the weekends to an activity you love. So that, that that's a cool thing. And Jack gave me a goal of John O'Leary Day at the ballpark, which eight months or so after the, the burn incident, we lived into. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that story, but it begins with a man who did not need to, he did not need to, showing up for a little boy who had no chance, is told by the staff, there's really no chance, you're wasting your time. And then he comes back and then he comes back and then he keeps coming back. That uh, That is uh, an amazing Reference to an amazing guy, um, and I'm sure coming back, you probably say the same about you now. Just wake up, and then what a what a great share there. I appreciate yes. that. I, I, Danny, I know we're running out of time, so I have to say this has been such an amazing experience here to have John with us today. What do you think? Absolutely, and uh, I think uh, the story just uh, it, it's it's an inspiration, you know. And, and hearing hearing you speak, John, it just it resonates so much with me as it has with, with you, Tim. And, and I hope for the, well, I don't know it has with our listeners. And uh, I'm ready to go to, to Kissimmee and, and, and get on with the conference and hear, hear the full 
to hear the full uh, full speech and hear and, and get get to meet you. And uh, uh, one other thing, real quickly here, John, you mentioned your uh, your books, uh, including the one that with the the, the the somewhat negative review there, although that was a very isolated one. I'm quite sure. Uh, I, I would love for you just to tell us a bit about your books uh, and uh, where listeners can get copies of it. Awesome. So you you can visit me online at readinaw.com. So read R-E-A-D-N-I-N-A-W-E, readinaw.com. On that little page, we have like a 21-day challenge. It's a hope challenge. We recognize people need hope right now, so that's free. There's social media links. You can learn about my podcast and speaking. That's all there at readinaw.com. And then the books themselves that you were asking about, I uh, got two books. One is called On Fire. And yes, most of the reviews are highly positive, which is what makes the negative ones <laughs> funny rather than tragic. So, uh, you know, w- when you see yes. all five stars and you see one guy just ripping on me paragraph after paragraph, you got to ask yourself, my God, what poor fella. Like, how do I reach out to this guy and just hug him? I, I, I need to pull him close, man. So, uh, yeah, most reviews are positive on, on the books. And, um, Go to readinaw.com. The first one on fire. Let me tell you this. When the when the publishers created the book jacket, that's like the cover, they came back and they had a picture of me wearing a suit looking at the, the reader like, hello, people, look at me. If I can do this, certainly you have no exclusive. So I wrote back and I'm like, man, before you create the jacket, read the book and then create a new title, a new, a new cover. So apparently they did. When they came back, now there's no picture of me on the front or the back. It's only these letters that are made out of fire. It's They call it gold foil. But it looks like fire when you look at the letters on fire. And if you look closely, you don't see John O'Leary. You actually, it's like a mirror. You see yourself. And the whole idea of the book is within this story of overcoming, within the stories of heroes and leaders showing up for a little boy, you see yourself. The call ultimately of this book is not to identify the end of it. Wow. John O'Leary's a great guy. What an overcomer. Not at all. The whole call is to recognize how broken that kid is, how how, uh, mistake prone he is, how the community showed up. And yet, if they did it, I can see myself in their shoes and I can take the next right step in my own community, in my marriage, in my singleness, in my place of work to make a radical, miraculous difference for someone that I'm called to serve. So now instead of uh, my picture on the covers, you're you're going to see yours. So that's Odd Fire in Awe. Secondarily is about returning to childlike wonder. I, I'm raising four kids right now. And when I come home from a bad day at work or a difficult trip, <clears throat> I see on their face what is so often missing on mine. Just this, this joy and this peace and this acceptance and this ability to imagine that anything is still possible. And they prove it out every single day. So I, I wanted to write a book about being a child again, not childlike, uh, not childish, but but childlike. And uh, it's possible and it's transformational, not only for safety, but for life. So in awe and on fire. And you can learn about that at readinawe.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and again, thanks again for being with us today on behalf of the Safe Talk team. Um, just for our listeners, one more time, John will be our keynote speaker at the Human Factors Conference. You can go to safestart.com to get more information on the conference. And on behalf of Safe Talk with Safe Start, I'm Tim. And I'm Danny Smith. And uh, just a reminder, if you have uh, a topic or someone that you would like for us to, uh, to have here on the, the podcast, we would love to hear from you. 
so you can email uh, either myself or Tim. Our emails are pretty easy. Uh, mine is Danny at SafeStart.com, and Tim's is, I always joke and say it's easier by two letters, T-I-M, Tim at SafeStart.com. So uh, you can email either one of us, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much, and be looking forward as well for uh, for our Human Factors Conference. Man, I'm excited about it, and this is uh, it's just going to be incredible. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great day.